Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. Welcome to the new year, everyone. Do you know that this is the beginning of our third year as a podcast? Amazing. Thank you for being here around this podcast table and sharing your ideas. This wouldn't be nearly as much fun without all of you and our guests. I really love having conversations with our guests. Like today, we talk about something I know very little about, but once you're introduced to it, you can't help but be fascinated. We are talking today about the spread of Judaism in Africa. I've been curious about this because when I used to live in Jerusalem, there was a distinct synagogue where the Ethiopian Jews gathered, and I knew a little bit about the complicated history of Israel allowing African Jews to make Aliyah, or not allowing it. But that's about all I knew. So I was excited to meet Professor Sar Masayahu Israul. He is the collector of many degrees, and his research focuses on the turn of the 20th century African-American religious nationality movements. But his professional career revolves around curriculum development for K-12 through social studies. He is also the founder and host of the Leading by History podcast. There is so much to learn today, and if you do not know the history of Jews in Africa, well, buckle up. You are in for a ride. Enjoy the conversation. As a historian, you spend a lot of time getting people of all ages to understand how significant context is for not only these people of history, but these events of history as well. So I'd love to hear your own reflections on your own context, especially during formative years and what that had to do with the way that you currently think about God. I didn't grow up in a household that was practicing you know, my parents and, and myself, well, really, I inspired my parents to develop and, and get to their practice. But I grew up listening on Shabbat to my mother playing these Hebrew teachings on the radio by uh, Black Jews. And, you know, it just was getting into my psyche as, as a kid listening to that, but still uh, not observing anything really, but seeing those Hebrewisms throughout the family, uh, my grandmother on my father's side, having this concept of Sabbath where you couldn't go outside and play, couldn't do our sports, you know, you couldn't have your barbecues, that kind of thing, you know. So there are always these elements where even though people aren't practitioners of a specific faith, there are these rudiments mm -hmm. that are there. And as you get older, you have a desire to find out more about why, and you want to get beyond the tradition and you want to find out, you know, the why, what's behind this. You know, we understand that 
you know, this thing is done, but why is this thing done? You know, it makes me think about how Michael Brown, my buddy, <laughs> how he said the story of uh, years ago, he was I think it was the 90s. He told the story of uh, Jews who were in this little shul in this uh, storefront, you know, down like sort of underground. And there were these pipes coming out of the ceiling. And so in order to get up to the Bema to read and, and to lead the prayers, they had to bow down, right, to not hit the pipes. And years later, after the pipes were removed and the buildings upgraded, people were still bobbing down and coming up to get onto the Bema. And it became a part of the tradition. And uh, when the younger folks started to ask about it, they were taking it seriously and like, hey, you got to bob here when you, you know, and they found out that the reason it was done was because there were pipes in the ceiling years before that there was no religious piece that was required to it, but it had become a part of the culture. So, you know, it's one of those kinds of things where it's like, you know, you start to adapt things you see or things that you hear, but you don't really know what's behind it. And so that led me. Uh, as a as a kid into this journey, probably around, you know, 16 years of age to really just start saying, I want to know more. What's the deal? What's the heritage? What's the background? Why are we doing these things? And then that was the beginning of the remainder of my life. I became, you know, a member of a Hebrew uh, congregation around 17 and a half, 18 years of age, you know, and it was a, a congregation with people of color you know, messianic in approach. And, you know, and I still attend that congregation still to this day. And, you know, I'm still a part of it. So, you know, there's a lot involved there. (laughs) But anyway, that's just a little bit of the personal context. It's interesting in that it for like so many of us, right, there is something kind of religious in the waters as we're growing up. And it's as we come of age, and we start looking at it a little bit more to say, but is that mine? Right. As opposed to just, am I inheriting this? But what does it mean to me? And it sounds exactly. like, yeah. And so then how were your parents affected by the process that you went through? Well, you know, there were always these religious overtures, right? Like that were existent, but, you know, then there was still a lifestyle that wasn't congruent, you know? And so when I went away to college at 18, I was fully living out you know, uh, this way of life. And, you know, along with clothing, dietary, you know, the whole deal. And so my dad had this dream that he was in uh, this pit and that there was like, you know, this agony and this uh, quote unquote weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he was like, he recognized that he wasn't living the life that he should And he kept trying to get out of the pit and he couldn't. And then, you know, he woke up and he was like, wow, so my son's really on it right now. He's really doing it, you know, so we need to like move out of the hood and get away from everybody that we know and go out into the countryside and, you know, really attempt to live a biblically sound lifestyle. And and that's what ended up happening. So by the time I came back to visit from college, you know, my dad's already, you know, in seminary and the whole nine ending up with a THD, you know, and my mom following suit right behind him and her also gaining her THD later. You know, I guess I, I sparked that piece. They saw me change and realized that it was necessary. In the various places where you've lived, 
what is it like to find a synagogue or a congregation to belong to that is of people of color? Yeah, it's really, it's interesting. When I, back in the late 90s, I lived in Mexico for a summer finishing a program. I, I was getting a certification in advanced Spanish and I was in Morelos, Morelos, let me say it correctly, Morelos, Mexico. And so while I was there, I was at the Kwanawak Institute of Language and Culture. And I remember we had this uh, thing in the afternoons called Intercambio, which is like this exchange of folks who don't speak English well. So mm -hmm. they pair them with people who do speak it well and, and vice versa with Spanish. And so I had a Magen David, it's called the Magen David. You know, we say Magen David. We pronounce the V's as W's, right? And Which is the Star of David. Star of David, correct. Yeah. And so she, yes, she saw this on me and she was like, you know, tu eres un judío, you know, are you a Jew? And I said, you know, Simon Esa, you know, like, of course, yes. And so anyway, she was like, you know, my sister and my family, they practice and, you know, they wow. attend a, a congregation. And I'm like, wow, I'm looking for a place to go while I'm here. And so I go to this rough neighborhood called Antonia Barona. And when I, when I get in the cab, you know, the cab driver is like, <laughs> you know, are you sure that you want to go over here? And it's one of those neighborhoods. You know, I grew up in the inner city, so I know, you know, what it what the deal is, no matter where in the world. So when I got there, it was completely quiet. That's when I knew it was a dangerous neighborhood. There's nobody outside playing. There are no dogs barking. It's completely quiet. So anyway, I get out. And this is before GPS, you know, cell phone stuff and all of that. And so I'm walking around the neighborhood trying to find someone, you know, the cab driver speeds off, leaves me in a cough of dust. And so I'm walking through this neighborhood, you know, gladly because of my phenotype, people can't really tell what I am. I can sort of change mm, up, you know, and be, you yeah. know, and so anyway, I end up finding this little place called La Iglesia de Dios Israelita, you know, ah. the... Uh, the church of Israelite church of God, you know, and I'm like, wow. So I knock on the door. I see, you know, my buddy from Intercambio and then she invites me in and I go in and the women are like dressed in long dresses with scarves on their head. And, you know, I see this Torah 10 commandments kind of piece on the wall, but I can tell the Hebrew looks a little funny. And, you know, I sit down and they're speaking a lot of Spanish miles a minute, but anyway, I sit down and talk to the elders and they start asking me questions, right? When it's time to eat after the service is over, they're like, you know, do you know Hebrew? And I said, well, yeah, you know, pretty much I'm pretty good. And so they started having the entire congregation come by for me to write their names on slips of paper in Hebrew. And I'm like there for like 15 minutes, just as everybody's coming around. And so then they start questioning me, you know, where is heaven? What is oh, goodness. hell? You know, where are the angels? And so they're asking me all these questions. And so I'm giving them answers, biblical answers, right? Just straight up verses. Like when you get in that kind of situation and you know, they're Bible believing people, the best bet is to just quote the verses and let them take it where they want. And so when I finished, he was like, you know, he's like, Él es lo mismo. like he, he, el lo mismo. he's like us. 
And they sat down, they fed me and it was, you know, we had a good time. And this is when I really started to understand. Mm -hmm. And I hope I'm not overextending on your question, but just to warn you, I go around the barnyard a couple of times just because I I really believe context matters. Right. So pun intended. (laughs) <laughs> and and so so at, at this point, I, I understand more about this lost tribe idea that's floating around the world. I'm still, you know, somewhat young at that time, a young man, but I'm I'm beginning my historical journey, you know, as a historian. And so I learned about this lost tribe narrative that is it floats around. It's in it's in South America, uh, Middle America, North America. It's in Asia. You know, it's it's in the Middle East. I mean, there's this lost tribe idea. And so answering your question about finding places with people of color I came to realize that there were these congregations scattered all across the United States and all across the world that were people of color who had a claim of being Jews. Some of them, you know, had a lot of heavy Christian influence, some of them more messianic. And I know some would would conflate those, but I wouldn't. Some were messianic in, in approach and then some who were strictly Torah, you know, so, sort of like almost Karaite which means that they didn't really have Talmud, Midrash, and all of those kind of things, but just strictly Torah. And so when I went away to college, of course, I'm looking for a place to fellowship. And I'm remembering that, you know, I only knew of a couple places where I lived. And when I got to college, I found this place. I don't want to say the name of it, but it was a, most congregations have a Beth in it, Beth, you know, Beth. <laughs> and so I find this place in Philly and it's like in the hood in Philly. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm at home. This is great. So I get in there. I, I sit on the wrong side, you know, cause our congregation did front back men and women. Theirs was left, right. You know, I, I sit in the <laughs> wrong place. They're like, what are you doing? And I, I'm not familiar with a lot of the practices that they are doing. I stand up, I testify. They try to marry me to somebody immediately. They're like, there's a sister in the back that's looking for a husband. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm just a college kid. I'm trying to just get my books for my class. Like, I don't know what's going on. And and the, and one of the elders like grabs me by the arm and says, you go to the back and see the sister. And then I get back there. This is lady. She's like in her thirties to me. I'm, I'm like 18. I'm like, she's the oldest lady on earth at that time. It, ironic. I'm almost 50 myself now. Right. But at that time as an 18 year old, I'm like, Oh, who's this old lady. And then she's saying to me, do you have someone to take care of you? Someone who can cook and to clean. And I'm just like, what? I don't even have my dorm room yet. So anyway, um, I, I come to realize that this was a group called Hebrew Israelites, and they were a group of Torah-only Hebrew Israelites, right? Because when I grew up, everybody's got this messianic approach. We're not Christian. We don't do the, the Christian holidays and all of that. We got a very Hebraic approach, but there is this belief in this Mashiach, uh, this Messiah of Nazareth. And, and you know, uh, who's known as Yahushua, Yeshua. In our tradition, we say Yahusha. And and so I, you know, I get there and they're like doing something completely different. So anyway, I, I find all of these different groups. I go downtown 
to this place called the Clothespin in Philly. And there are these dudes on the street corners. They've got spikes all over their arms. They've got swords. And they're like, and the white man. And I'm like, what is this? You know, and 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 so I'm exposed to a world that I had never known. So, again, leapfrogging from your original question, it was very difficult to find a place similar to what how I had grown up, you know, and coming up in. But I did realize that there were people of color that had this belief in being Jews that were all around me. And uh, I, I never had known about it before. It's one of the things that I have enjoyed about our previous conversations, because I think when we think of Judaism, we think of white versions of Judaism. And and it's just really interesting to open your eyes and realize that there's lots of different versions of Judaism. And before we go much further, because you mentioned Hebrew Israelites in the congregation that you visited in Philly— uh, can we define some terms? Because there is a group that is called the Black Hebrew Israelites. And we are going to, in our conversation, be talking about people of Africa who are Jews who have black right. skin. <laughs> so Black Jews or Jewish people of Africa. Are we talking about the same group of people? Do the Black Hebrew Israelites, would they say that they're Jewish? And how how do we understand where they are coming from versus what we're going to be talking about in terms of Jews coming out of the continent of Africa? Well, you know, a couple of things to consider is, number one, you know, the Black Hebrew Israelites now don't like that term. There was a time where they would they would call themselves, Mm. you know, Black Hebrew Israelites, some groups would, but now they really don't like this term because Ah. it's been put on them and associated with the hate groups and all of these. Mm. So they're attempting to, some of them redefine themselves, right? But I use the term Black Hebrew Israelite or BHI to refer to all of those groups that deny a central connection to Jews of any other color or race around the world other than Mm. Black folk in America or the Caribbean, right? The Black Hebrew Israelites, to me, the way I define it, are those who believe in this. They have what's called a 12 tribes chart. And they believe, you know, that the Negroes are the tribe of Judah and, you know, Manassas, the Cubans and Issachar, the Mexicans. And and they've got this tribal breakdown and they believe that white people are evil and that they're going into slavery and all of those are the black Hebrew Israelites. So I still use that terminology. I know they don't like it, but I use it anyway because I, I want to other them purposely. I did ask him after our interview during a side conversation what the black Hebrew Israelites prefer to call themselves these days. And he said Hebrew Israelites which is what makes everything confusing, because Masayahu is about to tell us about how a different group of African Jews identify as Hebrew Israelites. So you can see how confusion could develop between these two very different groups. So listen for the growing distinction between the African Jews preferring to call themselves Hebrew Israelites as distinct from other Jewish groups. Now, Hebrew Israelite is a terminology that we see floating around 
in the 40s and 50s uh, gently, but it, it starts to take on more of a heavy presence in the 60s and 70s. And by the time you get to the 80s, it's a, a common terminology that's being used in America for Jews of African descent who don't want to call themselves Jewish because they were not accepted by traditional European Jews. So they said, okay, well, you don't want us to be a part of your thing. So we'll create our own thing called Hebrew Israelites. And in in that regard, we'll still do similar practices. We'll still set up synagogues and things of that nature and do the daily prayers and all of that. But we don't, we're not accepted by you. So we will have our own, right? So Hebrew Israelites is a wider term that can refer to even authentic Jews of African descent, whether legitimately by ancestral claim or by conversion. So on my program, you know, recently I had Rabbi Capers Fune, who is Michelle Obama's first cousin, ironically, and he was called Obama's rabbi for the eight years that uh, President Obama was in office. And Fune, his name related to Yefune out of the Torah, and this is his original family name, you know, post transatlantic slave trade, should I say. And so he doesn't believe that Jews who convert are converting, that Black Jews who go through the Brit Milah, the circumcision, and that whole process are actually reverting to Judaism. And that that's his position. So he went through conservative conversion, right? And he serves on the Chicago Board of Rabbis. He holds to being a part of both communities, Hebrew Israelites and the Jewish community, and has a synagogue, beautiful synagogue. I just visited it a few months ago, a beautiful synagogue with Jerusalem stone and all of that. It's just a beautiful place and they they own it. And there are Jews from all different parts of the world who come there for service. So you've got black Hebrew Israelites who are the you know, white people are evil folks that wear, you know, the strange outfits with the spikes and, you know, all of those things. And then you have Hebrew Israelites who are generally like black Jews that just didn't want to uh, succumb to the pressures of conversion for the sake of being accepted. Right. Right. Then, Then you have a group that are called the black Hebrews. And now they've dropped the term black and just they call themselves the the African Hebrews now. Um, And those are the folks that went to Israel in the 60s and were originally given the ability to to come in under the law of return. But then within a year, the wording changed and the law changed and they weren't accepted by the nation of Israel. So I wanted to make that point. And so then also I wanted to say that when we talk about black skin, of course, the black Israelites and the Hebrew Israelites would be clear to say that no one's skin is actually black, but a different shade of brown. And I would be remiss if I didn't pull that out, right? And I'm really glad you you did because the whole, like the labeling black Jew as if a black Jew is different than just Jew, which is not at all the case. So yeah, which is why I was trying to be like Jews who are coming out of Africa kind of but it, it's hard to know, like, <laughs> right. what do different labels mean when people are using them? So thank you so much for clarifying. That was super helpful. And I'd wager that 
when most people think of, especially Orthodox Judaism, they're thinking of the white European, most likely Ashkenazi Jews, potentially Sephardic Jews, if they know the difference. But, and you've already touched on this, how much diversity is there really in Judaism? Right. So the, you know, it's like for me, I'm of the, the, the opinion and the belief that Judaism is too really narrow of a term to really explain this practice that, that I believe extended all the way back to Abraham Avinu, right? Uh, Abraham. And, you know, Abraham wasn't a Jew, even though that's taught in many synagogues and, yeah. and Jewish day schools, but he actually was called a Hebrew, right? Yep. And this ties into why the Hebrew Israelites chose that terminology. Yeah. You, you go to the book of 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two, and it says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. And are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. And so th these are the little nuances of King yeah. James Version uh, biblical texts that aid and abed the ideas that develop for Black Jews and even Hebrew Israelites over time. Now, in Judaism, the, the Hebrew term is Yahadut, right? Yahadut. And, and, and this term is a little bit more broad to me. It, it's the, uh, it, it comes from a root Yahadath, which we see in the book of Esther when it talks about the people became Jews, right? So it, it, it's, a, it's a wider piece. Um, anytime I hear an ism, I always think about something that is very narrow and modern, right? Mm -hmm. That's just my personal perspective. Mm -hmm. So I always say Yahadut, right? But, but Judaism as defined as I'm saying it, uh, is broken into several streams. I don't want to say broken into, but separated into. I don't even want to say that, but it, it developed several streams yeah. over time. And so there, and this that's the terminology that's used within Judaic thinking is a stream as opposed to, you know, sect has sort of a bad word in Judaism. Yeah. You know, there were even prayers against the sectarians, you know, into the first century and second century time period. So you have Ashkenazi Jews, which refers to Jews of European descent as a whole, those who are, you know, German based specifically, which is where the term Ashkenaz really comes from. Then you have the Sephardi or the Sephardi Jews, which that terminology really refers to like Spain, right? But it's, but it's taken on this idea of Eastern Jew, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to Western Jew, like Ashkenazi. Now, after the state of Israel is developed, you know, this term called Mizrahi, which means like Eastern, literally like Eastern Jew is developed, but it's not an ancient term. You have mm -hmm. what are called the, the Temanim or the Temani Jews, which which are the Yemenite Jews and our hearts should go out in prayers for them today because there is a, a, a and has been a major genocide going on yep. in Yemen uh, for for years that few people have even spoken about. And Yemenite Jews are down to the hundreds, if I'm not mistaken, at this point in time. And there really needs to be more emphasis and attention on them. 
Then you have in more modern times, you have reformed Jews, right? And the reformed Jews are really fun. I know a lot of reformed Jews, and it's it's a more modern Judaism that was created for like the American context, if you will. I think their very first national convention, they served like pork and and shellfish <laughs> is alleged. <laughs> Alleged as part of, you know, some people deny that, but that's sort of the narrative that goes along that they were really attempting to to make this stand that, you know, we are culturally Jews, but we're not held to these old traditions and customs. And then you've got Reconstructionist Jews. So these streams are are wide and ranging, but generally most folk know Ashkenazi and Sephardi, which is sort of like, you know, Western and Eastern Jews. And then, of course, you have African Jews and a term that Moray Yehuda bin Lawi has coined is Waji or West African Jews, you know, Jews of West African descent, the Waj. And so, you know, there's a lot going on there. Ha, something of an understatement, perhaps. Okay, to recap, there is a group called the Black Hebrew Israelites that developed in the USA, but they do not associate with Torah-studying Jews. Then there are the Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, who are the ones you probably see more pictures of. Then you have African Jews, who are not always accepted by the European lighter-colored skin Jews. So they've taken on another name for themselves, like African Hebrews or Hebrew Israelites or any of the more specific terms based on the region of Africa where they originate. Did you catch all that? Now that we have that cleared up, we will move on next week to talk about how Hebrew Israelites ended up in North America through the transatlantic slave trade and what their history was like here in North America. If you're like me, and most of this is history that you're not so familiar with, you'll love the conversation. Thank you all for being here and doing all that you do to spread the word about Context Matters. We are growing And thus, a very special thanks goes to Tammy O'Banion, Carrie and Scott Jenkins, who are all Patreon members. They faithfully support this project and make Context Matters sustainable, and they are the ones who got us to our third year. Thanks for being so amazing. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.